Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Such a beautiful intro. <laughs> Can even hear the scratchiness of the sixties. Ugh, the sixties. Do you remember those days? I remember those days. <laughs> we smoked a lot and oh had my God. fun. And... Okay, not everybody did drugs in the sixties. You're right. Why do we always associate? Yeah, you associated why. that. That's because I'm stupid. I don't know. Oh my about god. The 60s. <laughs> I know about the fifties, wow. but not as much about the sixties. Way to way to start off the podcast. Well, oh, sorry. I'm an idiot. And she's stupid. <laughs> so welcome. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So today, obviously, we're going to be talking about the Twilight Zone. If that wasn't obvious, thank you. You had some fun information for us, didn't you? Right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, it's great though when you say Twilight Zone, everybody associates it with the classic TV series that will remain classic forever. But fun fact is that there's two other terms it was used for around the same time. I think it's interesting because they're very relatable to the Twilight Zone episodes, too. It's it's very mysterious and kind of obscure. But the first one they used as a term to describe the point in the ocean where the sunlight can't reach anymore. And you know how it kind of like dwindles if you ever see images of water and where the sunlight sort of just starts to dwindle down further, further down? There's a measurable point where the light stops and then it's all the darkness of the ocean beneath. I'm not saying that implies anything, <laughs> but it might imply something. No, I don't think it does. Not at all? That sounds all right. crazy. Well, in that case, I have another one for you. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the Air Force used the term Twilight Zone as the point when the pilot is landing. They can't visually see the horizon anymore, so they kind of have to trust that they're landing on something. It's like a blind spot for them when they're landing. So they call that point the twilight zone. That's like me every day driving my car. I know, right? <laughs> I'm going to do that. I'm going to call my blind spot the twilight zone now. There I'm you like, go. When oh, you're in my twilight zone, oh I my God. see you. <laughs> Please don't associate this wonderful show with bad driving. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so but yeah, I think that's really uh, telling as to why they chose that title. And I don't know, did you read it all about who chose the title? It was Rod Serling. Okay. Yeah. And he, in an interview, he said he thought he made it up. But then oh. people later told him that that was a term used for these two things specifically. Which is even better. I know. But he's he's the one that, like, coined it majorly. In this context. Exactly. Yeah. Good old Rod. You know, gotta live Rod. Which is also a very 60s name, which we talked about. Oh, yeah. So if you don't mind, 
I would like to kind of give us a quick rundown on the Twilight Zone, and I think that you have quite uh, some good information as well. So please just jump in. And so we'll we'll talk about the the show. We'll talk about sort of the timeline a little bit, and then we'll talk about the the parameters of the episode. Oh, the formula. Thank you. The Jesus story Christ. formula is very key. Absolutely. We'll talk about the formula just to give sort of a, a basic understanding before we jump into a couple, a handful of episodes that we wanted to discuss. Absolutely. Yeah. And those who are just tuning in, Jen is more associated and familiar with Twilight Zone than I was because I didn't actually watch it when I was growing up. Which is bananas but that's cool i know i missed out (laughs) i really missed out but our main question is what makes the twilight zone show so timeless especially for story and that's what our podcast is all about is what makes a good story and why and if we're gonna say twilight zone is some of the best tv stories there are because it's referenced so much well we're gonna prove why in this episode (laughs) amen I think a lot of people are familiar with at least the concept of the show, but it was a fantasy and sci-fi TV show. It presented ordinary people in ordinary situations and then suddenly shocked that reality with like a classic twist or a, a different sort of ending that would shift the perspective from like what's real and what's in the moment to surrealism to what you would only find in fiction. And of course, the key behind the show is Rod Serling, S-E-R, not S-T-E-R. Yeah, he's he's one of my favorite writers, as you know, so that's why I kind of fangirl over him a little bit. One of the things I really like about him is his skill for the uncanny, and that's not something you really see in television show writers. There's not like a TV show writer I can think of where I'm like, ugh, they know how to write the uncanny. And definitely not before him. I'm mean, talking about like the 40s and 50s where TV series were very safe. Everything was so safe and pretty to beaver simple and Mm -hmm. this was revolutionary for its time very much so and and in more ways than one one of the things that that i read about him was that he was called a quote angry man which i didn't understand until i read more about it but that was sort of a term that they used either about him or about people in general who had difficulty with censorship not with, I mean, they had difficulty as in they didn't like being censored. Oh, got it. Which most people don't like being censored. And the network, of course, even now you find censorship over the weirdest things, thanks to different groups that were also affected Hitchcock. And I mean, it's it's something that's always existed in film because there's that separation between art and society and people who are afraid of what their children might be watching on television or in a movie. So he he was somebody that absolutely loathed censorship. I and mean, he he liked having social commentary, obviously. Yeah. And those were some of the key themes behind the show. And of course he was in his 40s or 50s, I think, when he was writing Twilight Zone, so he had gone to war, he had seen World War II. I mean, there were a lot of demons in his mind and skeletons in the closet and he wanted to write about them and expose them and that's what being an artist is as soon as you bring in censorship then you're stifling that creativity that opportunity that's terrible because that's the perfect time to do it too is after a war is just bring it all out in in ways that it's tangible for your audience because you can understand it that's right 
That's right. And he, you know, I mean, I think the film, like I said, the film industry has always been sort of that way where it's it, it leans towards business more than it does art, which has its ups and its downs. I mean, I think it pretend I think for it to be a little bit closer to the business side allows for these sort of really realistic viewings of art. Agreed. But the downside, of course, is that it's censored to some degree. Unless you have a good writer like Rod Serling who works his way around it in a in a in a good way as opposed to being loud about it or causing waves. He always tried to sort of placate the network so that he could kind of like slide in under the radar. And it worked for him. Good for him. Oh yeah. And there were a couple other writers on the show that were sort of around for a while. Rod wrote the majority of them, of course, but there was another guy, Bowman, um, another guy, Matheson, and these guys were, were good writers, but they weren't really into social commentary. Mm. They liked terror, you know, and, and horror and sci-fi and fantasy. So those tend to not have the same sort of emotional oomph behind them because they're just about the, the twist at the end and like really kind of messing with your head. Thanks, guys. But they still, I'm assuming they still had to fit their stories into that Twilight Zone formula, the Rod Serling formula that I think helps that creative tendency to have a boundary. And sometimes boundaries are really good for that. And I'm glad Serling wasn't the kind of guy that that said, no, that's a terrible idea. I'm going to (laughs) change it so it fits into my view. It's like, yeah, you do what you want as long as it fits this formula. And I think that's a great way of working if that's what happened. I can't remember his name. I didn't write it down. But one, the first producer that he had that worked with him was really sort of amazing and knew the business really well and knew people and was able to sort of help Rod form his ideas into a television show and make it work. But the writing, of course, is like the majority of it. So you'd have to follow the formula that he and this producer created together. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. And then there was another writer, George Clayton Johnson, and he was, he's super amazing, really well-known writer at the time. He wrote the first episode of Star Trek. He wrote the pilot. He wrote Ocean's Eleven, the original. He wrote the classic um, cult film Logan's Run. And he mentored with Ray Bradbury. And Ray Bradbury was like this huge sci-fi writer at the time. And uh, for, for books, not television or film. Uh, he wrote Fahrenheit 451, of course. He was a huge racist and a sexist, of course, because that's what our writers are, <laughs> apparently. Um, try to separate the good and the bad. I mean, yeah, it's like, okay, well, we can't put them on a pedestal, you know? Like, they were great writers, but also they were bad people, too. It's okay to be both. Right. I mean, don't be both, but you know what I mean. And he actually came on to... The Twilight Zone as well, Ray Bradbury, which made a lot of sense because he's a sci-fi writer and this was a sci-fi based show. So they brought him in and he and Rod did not get along. Interesting. They like... Somehow that makes me feel better. I know. <laughs> I know. Rod could not stand him. I was like, that's my boy. Good. Yeah. Good for you, Rod. Yeah. And he threw a hissy fit, Ray Bradbury. He wrote an episode of The Twilight Zone that everybody like pretty much agrees is one of the worst episodes ever. <laughs> See? Way to, like, Did you feel that, your Ray? ego. Yeah. <laughs> really. So, yeah, they he stormed off set, and he said he would never work with them again and hated him and all this stuff. But George Clayton Johnson was like, nah, this is cool. Rod, Rod's cool. You know. I'm like, good. Thank you. That's very Jeez. decent of you, I guess. 
And I think the the other really cool thing about the Twilight Zone, of course, is its effect on American society. I don't know how big it is in other countries. I would assume it sort of is like how it is here, where it's on TV, you know, every, was it 4th of July or whatever holiday it is? It's not 4th of July. Oh, interesting. It, they New do like marathons? Yeah, I think oh. it's New Year's. They do these like 24 hour marathons of the twilight zone see i didn't even know that that's how out of the loop of the twilight zone i am <laughs> well i mean you guys didn't watch a lot of tv when you were kids right but we were super into star trek maybe that's why we we're just like nah star trek's the that's it you know that's <laughs> you found it and you were gone all, end all, yeah <laughs> interesting well yeah i mean i think that's i think that's initially how i first saw it was on some random marathon and then you you know when you're a kid and you see these even when you're an adult and you see some of these episodes they're very disturbing in a in a really human way not in a like well I'll never sleep again exactly I I like that and I think you know the only show that nearly universally can be recognized recognized by its by not only by its theme song but by the implication of something weird going on which is so great because there's been so many situations where you I'm sure have also heard somebody say something like "Ooh, it's the twilight zone or somebody starts singing the first notes of the the theme song and it's like yeah like that's that's a tv show like it's it's kind of amazing how far tv has come because it's still such a young form of media it has nothing you know, compared to books, for instance, or poems or anything else. But it's really cool that you can, that it's entered our collective unconscious and you can recognize that by seeing people do things like that. And I do believe you're right. It is young. And I believe it could get on the same level as the written word if it's done right. And I I would say that Twilight Zone is one of those first stepping stones. I'm I'm not saying we're progressing in great ways at the moment (laughs) we might be on like a little down curve before we get back to the up curve um there's great stuff out there but i'm kind of surprised we're not evolutionized in the way we tell our tv form stories because you're right there's a lot of factors that are going into it that really hinder its evolution and that's a shame because obviously twilight zone was a huge step in the right direction right and why it's referenced so much in other tv shows now yeah yeah we're doing something great yeah and, you know, like, just like you said, you know, it's it's influenced and paved the way for so many shows and movies, including Star Trek, of course, but older shows, too, like The Outer Limits and then Quantum Leap, X-Files, Lost. There are so many different kinds of shows that we wouldn't have had in the same way if it hadn't been for The Twilight Zone, because basically Rod was able to convince a network in the 60s that sci-fi could be accessible to anyone and up until that point it was pulp you know it was it was in magazines it was short stories and it was it had a following of course but those were the sci-fi geeks you know what i mean like exactly most people didn't associate themselves with those people and he was able to sort of like bring it to our general world and be like hey anybody can enjoy sci-fi it's still like you said it's still storytelling it's still a story and here's how and why it works and what you can do with it, you know? It's pretty yes. amazing. <sighs> I just love him so much. Can you tell I'm gushing? <laughs> you can gush. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it's pretty amazing also just that so many people recognize the music and recognize parts or episodes or, or things that happen in the show. The show ended 24 years before either of us were born. I mean, it's so out of our own... I don't know other things that have happened 
like that in, in a pastime that I have no connection with. That's probably why it's sort of universally agreed that this is one of the best, if not the best, TV shows in creation thus far. Its timelessness is kind of recordable. I agree. And, and part of that is due to how Sterling conducted the set. Part of what he did, which it's still rare now, is to, to make a set that was conducive to everyone. Everyone treated everyone with respect. He respected the writers. Being a writer in television or film is a horrible thing to do. I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. But like, you're the you're the bottom of the totem pole. And one of the things Rod was able to do was give them a voice. And if he needed to change something, it was with the writer as opposed to I'll buy your script. Goodbye. And I'll just change whatever I want. So there was a lot of respect that he gave to the directors, to the actors, to the writers. And, and in turn, they all gave him his respect. And you can argue night and day that that didn't affect the show, but it absolutely did. So I'm hearing that a major term we're going to be using often in this description is trust. Trust in each other as creators, trust in the, its audience and like these really deep and meaningful lessons and morals. It's not assuming the audience is dumb. It's saying, I trust you, audience, to be curious, as curious as we are about these things. And we're going to do it in a safe environment where we trust each other. See, what a concept. <laughs> that I think that's such a big deal in life now, too, is this... If you trust somebody, you can't imagine the results of that. Right. It's, it's some of the most beautiful things ever created. Yeah. And curiosity. And curiosity. Yeah. I mean, those are so human, those two things. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. And there's a lot of hand-holding in shows and movies now because there's this fear. And that's fine if you really don't believe in what you're doing. Exactly. And it seemed like Rod always did. So even if it wasn't perfect, he stood by it and he stood by his people. Yeah. And he, he considered things. I mean, it wasn't just like a dictatorship either. You know what I mean? We'll be talking a lot about that too. Yes. Dictatorships and the different uh, political systems because Rod Serling touches on all of that. Because he's awesome. Yes. Because these are the things that you talk about as a person. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that's pretty much all the intro I wanted to give on it. We can we can move into the guidelines if you'd like. Yeah. Um, and the, the producer's name was Buck. Buck Hewton. Yeah. Or Hewton. I'm going to go with Hewton. So he and Rod Serling sort of concentrated the formula into three general rules. This is what the box I was talking about and what you introduced the TV series as is like this relatable thing because of these three steps. I'm going to use the words from a book that Jen and I read because we wanted to have some sort of literature on the show itself. And the book is called Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, the author Stuart Stanyard. So this is this is the way Stanyard sort of puts the formula. So number one. Find an interesting character or a group at a moment in crisis in life and get there quickly. <laughs> Again, this is a, what, 20 minute most of them are 20-minute episodes, right? I think, yeah, like 20, yeah, they must be. Right. So, yeah, everything has to be done kind of quickly. This yeah. isn't the 40-minute Except for later. That, well, yeah, there's a few of them, right? Th those don't count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you said that some people didn't quite like the 40-minute. I mean, Rod Serling himself did not want to do 40 minutes. He thought that was way too long because... Yeah. All the things that you see happen in one episode is pretty amazing, but it works because it's quick. Exactly. And you're out, you know, before you even get a chance to breathe. So it's it's pretty much agreed that the 20-minute parameter 
also worked for that. Um, so you can you can see your hero, you can see their crisis, and you get there quickly. But one important rule about that is that the characters must be ordinary, average, and modern, and the problem facing them must be commonplace, quote unquote commonplace. And you're right, this is what opened up the genre for everybody, because everybody can relate, even with that fantastic element, they can relate to this hero in this crisis, because Rod Serling was taking very modern, average problems and putting it into the fantasy. And the fantasy just happened to be the icing on the cake. It wasn't about the fantastical element as much as it was about the characters. Which, well, who was it? Not Plato. Who, who was the guy that Aristotle. We, Aristotle. Thank you. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> what are we talking about? It was very much something that Aristotle would agree with, right? Absolutely. Rule two. This is the part where you lay on some magic. That magic must be devilishly appropriate. And then rule three, it must be capable of providing a whiplash kickback at the tag. And that's what you mentioned at the very beginning, that the tag was the important sci-fi element. But also I think it worked for all these episodes because it is always about some dark fate or some twist ending that we're used to now. I think our generation is very used to the twist. That's why in, um, what did we watch where um, he's supposed to be the Goosebumps writer? <laughs> anyway, the way he, he the way he, R.L. Stein. Yeah, Stein. Yeah, Stein does the rule of three, right? Which is the beginning, the middle, and the twist. Right. Like that's where that comes from. Right. That there's always some like surprise for your audience. And it's not a surprise that'll deter your audience. It's a surprise that the audience knows can be possible, but they just weren't ready for it. But it's so satisfying and cathartic and appropriate. So it works. It works as a twist and not as a distrust factor. There's tricking and there's twisting. Exactly. Yeah. Serling always did the, the devilish yeah. irony at the end, which they would call a twist or kickback. So haunting. Love yeah. It. So those were the three rules there. And I did want to mention that it helped at this time. The kind of whitewashed character was always used for all these episodes. You know, you don't see diversity, which is very common for the 50s anyway. Right. But it is helpful when most of America find the whitewashed suburban or like clean city. Everything is very quote unquote white. Right. But at the time, that was what was relatable. Yeah. You know, those were your heroes. That's not true today. If Twilight Zone was written today with diverse characters, we wouldn't be phased by it. We wouldn't be distracted by it because right. we're used to that right. being the hero. But I'm sure back then it would have been distracting. I mean, probably, unfortunately. And I think, you know, like shows that, you know, Black Mirror is one of the shows that sort of is a, a take on the Twilight Zone, but it's it's pretty much always negative. It's kind of a dark fate situation. But they do have a couple episodes that really do feel like they could be a Twilight Zone episode with the updated diversity. Ah. Like there's one about two uh, women that fall in love with each other and it's all in this sort of virtual setting, you know, and it's about death and dying and love and what you can do beyond death. And it's beautiful. It's like one of my favorite things ever. But Excellent. And it, it, I think that would be sort of the modern version yeah or the the direction that they would try to go with cool. if they were smart which they are not so. <laughs> oh really i mean they've brought back the twilight zone over and over and over again and it's been completely unsuccessful oh, interesting it just does not work for many reasons but uh, i think we joked about this before but one of the reasons is it needs to be in black and white 
Uh, it's one of those shows where it just works better in black and white, which is kind of cool. I, I didn't actually watch any episode of Black Mirror, and I didn't watch any of the, the reboots of Twilight Zone. But I I have a feeling that a big part of that, because the reason I can tolerate and not be so psychologically damaged by Twilight Zone, <laughs> uh-huh. because I, I'm very easily damaged oh, yeah. by things like that. It didn't always used to be like that, but I am now. And, and it's a very, it's the show for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you were going to, you know, you know, continue. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. But it's because they are trusting me to fill in the gaps sometimes. They're wanting me to be curious because they're curious. They're not saying this is how it is and that's it, the end. Right. They're saying like, oh, well, this could have possibly happened at this time. And maybe this was here and that was there. And maybe you need to work it out for yourself. <laughs> you know, it's it's not, like you said, hand-holding and it's not stifling to your audience. It's assuming that you're as curious as they are. And it's not about concrete fact and you need to be this way. It's not the the priest who's doing the sermon like, you all have to be sorry, now go live your lives. (laughs) It's the priest that says, like, why don't you ask this question? Now go live your life. Right. I think that's a big difference. Curiosity is not something to be feared. And I think that's the opposite of Black Mirror. Interesting. I mean, in a lot of those episodes, it's sort of... Or at least it feels that way to me. I don't know. It kind of messed me up and I did not like that so much of it was sort of the underside of humanity. And I think that's like the the mistake people sometimes could could make with the Twilight Zone if they weren't if they didn't understand what was happening in the episode. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it definitely seems like it could be that when you watch any given episode of the Twilight Zone, but it's not that. There's enough diversity of kinds of stories that you can still feel optimistic as opposed to like, oh, okay, so everything sucks and we suck and we should just not be here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, who needs that? We already know that. (laughs) Business is not a great jumping off point. It's, you know, people want to be sent forth with curiosity, with hope, with any, any sort of positive feeling will get them wanting more. Right. So if it's too harsh... I don't I mean, you know, some people really do go for that and they they want to feel more of it. But gosh, I mean, even the people who could tolerate the most, I feel like they get affected at some point where it's too much. Yeah. So the then the second factor, the fantastic element. And this is what I think makes Twilight Zone a little bit different than the sci-fi at the time. Like Mm -hmm. you were saying, there's there's a lot of intelligence and psychology because it's not about the machine and it's not about the alien. They don't focus on the technical parts of it. The machines they do use are are recognizable, not only to to the people living in the 50s, but even now we recognize that, yeah, that alien machine is supposed to do that because we have like washing machines that do something similar. You know, (laughs) we know it's very relatable again. And they don't focus on that. It's not about the tech and the fantastic element. So that gives them room to then explore the psychology, for example, the social commentary, the, the human side of it, which I think should be the focus and makes the writing so good. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then I, I'm not to compare it to anything going on now because now it is a lot about the, tech. the fantastic, the tech, the graphics. Spectacle. The spectacle, yeah, that's what we call it. <laughs> it's about the spectacle. Whereas Twilight Zone, you feels like a play. Right. It's just two people. They don't use more than, what, two to three sets. Right. They're simple sets, but they're not distracting sets. But like you said, they, they get the image across. There's a couple different episodes with UFOs, and they all generally look about the same. But that's all you need because you don't need more than that because it's not about that, like it's you just said. Exactly. 
I'm just mansplaining back no, to you. No, 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 <laughs> no. Like, I want you to add on to this because I'm like, I'm not crazy, right? That That's why it makes it work. And it, it's cool. I mean, it's Inception-y because he's using images that we sort of psychologically understand, archetypally understand. Yes. Um, to stand in, to, like, let us know what we're headed towards. Does that make sense? Yes. Without having to invest all this time and energy into those images. Yes. And he even said something similar to his students. I have the quote here. He said, if you don't believe the unbelievability, then there's something wrong in the writing. So rather than thinking of a thousand years from now into the future, he's saying, what about a few years from now? Something that might happen. Because if you focus on the almost, then that's more compelling and you earn the trust of your audience. You never lose that trust. Yeah. And also why there's only one fantastic element per episode. Right. right. Now that's a big one. Only one fantastical element. Because, yeah, otherwise you would just be like, okay, this is for sci-fi people. The purpose is to stay in the story because it's not about that. Exactly. As somebody who enjoys sci-fi, I feel like I can still say, yes, this is a sci-fi show. Or fantasy. Because I'm fantasy. a fantasy fan. Yeah. And I see the fantasy and I believe it. And I am like, yeah, you have my credibility. Go on. Yes. You know. Yeah. It's not like these are excluding people who like those genres, which I think is a very precarious line to straddle. And they do it really effectively. They're like, no, we're not making fun of you. We're not telling you that this is not for you. Like it's all inclusive because it is about human and psychology and these images that we have in the collective unconscious. It's really beautiful. I love it. I love it. I just kind of want to mention now we can talk about allegory and because I also wanted to talk about magical realism. Yeah. I mean, we can we everybody calls Twilight Zone more fantasy and sci fi mm -hmm. as a genre. But it's interesting because when you wanted to look up allegory and I wanted to look up magical realism, <laughs> it's because the intelligence of the show enters into both categories. The definition of magical realism, which I have right here, <laughs> and, and we're going to talk about allegory too. It comments on the current status of the world via psychological study of characters put in extraordinary situations. Does that not describe Twilight Zone? Totally. Perfectly? Absolutely. In my argument, it's, well, magical realism. Totally. Even more so than sci-fi, in my opinion. But I, I know why they call it sci-fi, because there are aliens and there's time travel. And But again, it's not a distracting factor. These are all elements that he kind of picks and chooses from that all have to do with the extraordinary. Exactly. Which is awesome. So what about an allegory? Allegory, I mean, it's usually, it's when a, a character, a place, or an event is used to deliver a broader message about the real world, usually about social issues or things that are happening. It's basically in everything. I mean, allegory can be used in everything, but it's especially effective in Twilight Zone because it's taking all these, like, either hidden or semi-hidden complex meanings and using the symbolism as figures to explain what they're trying to say exactly <laughs> did that make sense yes. <laughs> okay great yes. <laughs> if anybody i'm sorry i was just gonna say if anybody's christian out there it's what the bible is just when you think of allegory you think of the bible please don't pick at us <laughs> i mean you know at, no, yeah. at least the bible in its literary form yes yes it's all allegory right it's i i like the idea that it, it's allegory used inside of magical realism about for rod it was a lot about social and political topics and 
war. I mean, a lot of he had a, quite a few episodes about war because he fought in the war and it affected him. Who would have thought? They didn't really have PTSD back then. I mean, they did, but they didn't, didn't acknowledge it. Yeah. They're like, oh, he's just crazy old Uncle Rod, uh, you know? Yeah. So, it, I mean, it definitely makes sense that this was his outlet. Yeah. I mean, it, it was something where he could put all of his ideas and thoughts about what was happening in America politically and, of course, socially because of politically and vice versa. In, into and we're going to talk more about what was happening at the time and how that cool. influenced it too in, in just a moment oh just a moment we'll be right back after these commercial messages <laughs> take a bathroom break do you ever sweat too much i'm just kidding <laughs> Ooh, this is my favorite one the third part which is the twist or the dark irony right which this might be the the traumatizing part, but yeah. it's also the thematic yeah, part. The good part. It's the moral, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say that. And the first time I recognized that that was part of the formula, you know, the first thing I thought of was Greek tragedy. Totally. Something like Oedipus, where you can't escape fate. Yeah. And there's justice in the world, and sometimes there's not justice in the world, but we need to see some attempt on that. And when somebody does get their comeuppance, yes. what they deserve, we find some cathartic reactions to that, too. Both good and bad comeuppance. Yeah. Mm. Again, it's the core of right. the story, because that's the point where you're like, ah, <laughs> I see. I see why the social commentary is here, and I see why this had to happen, why I relate it to events in my life like this, because we as a species want to see that justice. So I would call it dark irony in a lot of ways, um, even though like twist seems too simple. I'm like, yeah, it's a twist, but it's more than that. Yeah. You know, if they were using it in Grecian tales and mythologies and like, allegories, there was a reason for that because we psychologically react to something like that. I Yeah, I think so. I mean, a twist can be almost hollow because twist can be just sort of like, I mean, not that it was hollow, but like the sixth sense, it's like the whole point was the twist uh, right and that's not what this is about this is the twist that leads you to that moment of like yeah he deserved that finally or thank god she really needed to have that you know right either way it's the dark irony that gets you to that emotion as opposed to focusing on a twist exactly yeah the thing can't be that you only remember the twist right it's everything leading up to it yeah and i, I guess i would argue i mean we're going to talk about the episodes but i think i would argue that one of the most famous episodes known in the twilight zone the eye of the beholder is sort of more of a callback to a twist than it is a, di a dark irony totally which i think is really interesting because i do think that that was like an early episode i'm pretty sure oh yeah and and similarly to serve man right because everybody sort of quotes that final line mm -hmm. that was the twist of yeah of the circumstances i don't know that one for some reason affected me maybe because i just didn't see it coming ah. it didn't that for me like the what happens what that means is way bigger than what changes in Eye of the Beholder. But ah, we'll talk about it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I like that. <laughs> Jumping ahead. I, I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, we'll talk about both those episodes. Cool, cool. That's in our list. Yay. In, in the book that we read, The Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, there was a great quote that Stanyard uses to describe the twist because he was saying that 
the moral always had to do with quote unquote challenging man's morality but ultimately failing in favor of selfishness and temptation. Mm. Like that was generally the moral of every story was that humans are capable, but in most of the episodes, they don't meet that standard. They're flawed, which is excellent because your viewers are flawed. Right. So it's not the general hero's tale that you and I and our generation would be like, well, it's overcoming. <laughs> and some of them do. Some yeah. of them will have a change, and it's a good character change, but it's not in the same realm of superhero change. That's a great story, but for some reason, not getting quite there or... It's black and white. Yeah. It's yeah. black and white. It's not gray. It's not human. Exactly. Which makes sense. We've talked about this. People need that right now, apparently. So it's nice that... It's nice to, to see both, though. I miss the gray, yeah. which is what the Twilight Zone is. It's real people having real flaws, not like some rich guy who's complaining that he couldn't get a new plate for his suit. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't, has, doesn't have the same effect for me. Totally. Yeah. It's all about me, if you didn't know. <laughs> so sorry. But no, I would, I would really, yeah, because they are able to bring catharsis knowing that their moral is that men generally don't live up what does he say? In the challenge of man's morality, that they will fail in favor of selfishness and temptation, because generally that's how we're living. We can have moments of heroism, and we do see that in the Twilight Zone, but that's not the norm. And we have to know how to deal with that gray. I believe uh, the dinosaur eats man, <laughs> and then woman rules Earth. I'm pretty woman sure that inherits the Earth. Yeah, inherits the Earth. I believe that's what happens, actually, but okay. Oh, that's always going to be my favorite yeah. quote. I just, I can't even. <laughs> cool. I think that's all I had about the, the formula. Cool. So this is a good, do you want to talk about some of the, the historic yeah, placement? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, the show came out in 1960, and... That's all the information I have. <laughs> Excellent jumping point. Yes, thank you. This, yeah, this was a bananas time. This was, uh, was bananas. Let me tell you, back in my day. Oh, my God. And you already mentioned it. He went through World War II. Everybody was recovering from this traumatic new war. And we can see that it was new because it had the psychological, it had the nuclear. These are major changes in what was traditionally thought of as acceptable for a war. I mean, even a bunch of men like marching at each other was more acceptable because it felt more humane. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's stupid, but... Like massive death? I mean, it has I don't know that in Rod's lifetime there was ever even a hint at the, the amount the number of people who could die in horrible ways exactly. in a war. It's coming into the psychological, which is the individual and their minds. As big as a nuclear attack could kill everybody on the planet, on the scales, they, they got everything. Those who were involved in the war, those who had nothing to do with the war. It made a huge impact on everybody, but America was no exception. I'm sure Serling had a lot of, like you said, trauma to work out. Yeah. But then it doesn't help that also, after the war, we enter what we called the Cold War. Mm. Which was brisk. some of the... Chilly. Brisk. <laughs> we enter the winter storm of America. Tell me. The Cold War. 
when was the hot war and what happened in the cold war <laughs> i would was call it... world war Two the hot war oh no, I don't know. interesting i don't know just because they think like explosion oh gotcha that's the only reason tell me yeah tell me what the cold war is Sorry. so after well even during world war Two, there was a lot of tension between the u.s democratic capitalist system versus the russian they were a republic and they were a socialist system, but mm. it was specifically the Soviet Union. You've probably heard that before, but the Cold War. <laughs> That's all I knew about the Cold Well, So it's socialism, not communism. It, they're, they're, they're very similar. Oh, okay. I actually okay. looked up what the difference was, and it was something really small. I can't even remember what it was. Well, the socialists, they like to wear red, <laughs> you see. and the com- Actually, I think it's the opposite. And the communists, they like to wear orange. <laughs> it was a central government in both socialist and communist so i think that was the biggest fear for the united states who were very democratic and capitalist and even more so after world war ii of course because now they knew they were a major power in the world and they wanted not only to keep their power but when threatened with this soviet union that was sort of spreading its lessons to their citizens that's what they call the red scare in america is they're terrified that their citizens were converting to communism behind their back. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it was the stupid... I mean, there was a lot of a lot of secrecy, a lot of suspicion, a lot of distrust. Mm. And I think the average American didn't trust their government. Mm. And that's what they knew, is they knew democratic systems and they knew capitalist systems. Mm. And if there was something different, like, oh, equality in a communist system where everybody was taken care of i'm sure that was tempting in a lot of ways i was gonna ask like were was there a significant group of americans that were interested in becoming true socialists or communists i believe socialism is like the positive version of communism right that sounds right (laughs) yeah i never actually understood that but i think you're right i don't i don't know okay that's a good question i don't even know that much i bet you by by the 60s. Well, no, what was happening in the 60s? <laughs> I Love Lucy was on. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually don't know. Okay. If any of our listeners want to uh, message us later and let us know with that information, because maybe they were, even the war. boomers would know more about mm. that, I think, than. Okay, boomers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but right? I mean, they they would have they would have had parents who lived through the Red Scare. Through the nuclear arms race, right. through the, the space races, yeah, all of that competition between Americans and Russians. Good that... old, old-fashioned, hardy competition. <laughs> right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I feel like that was the one positive of the Cold War, is that the competition wasn't just against militaries. It was against innovation. Yeah. So that science. Included, yeah, science. Mathematicians. Um, yeah, mathematicians. Yeah, all of the... Yeah. The scientists got their chance to do something important. The scientists were cool for a very short period of time. <laughs> it was cool because they got funded by their government to be well, cool, yeah. probably. Yeah. Not to say that they're not always cool. but no, they were saying that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> they are always cool. But they're not always gifted with the money to do what they want to do with sure, their yeah. research, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so things like the Red Scare, nuclear arms race, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. when everybody thought everybody was going to start launching nuclear missiles at each other. Is that the Bay, of, the Bay of Pigs? I think so. Okay. Yeah, that included that. Yeah. Gotcha. Space race, I said Sputnik. Sputnik. When they, when they Sputnik. shot the satellite in and they were like, what is that? Is that for explosion? We don't believe you. Oh my God. You're watching us. And everybody had to do the drills of hiding <sighs> under their desk because that's what you did when there was a nuclear threat. <laughs> 
we're going to see a lot of that mentality feed into these episodes. Because like you said, it is all about some of the mentalities coming out of World War II and living during the Cold War with suspicion and fear and the individual not feeling important, not feeling listened to, the government not being trustworthy. People like reporting you, right? Wasn't that a thing in the Red Scares? Like being reported to the government and then they would like ruin your life? Exactly. Like that's terrifying. That's, yeah, that's basically a dictatorship without calling yourself a dictatorship. You are obsolete. Nobody else gets that joke. But you will, and you'll laugh. How appropriate. Actually, that's a very appropriate segue. Thank you. Into the first episode and the first theme we're going to talk about. Woo. Okay. So we're going to talk about a couple episodes that we picked out. Yay. And we're just going to kind of give you a little background on them. Talk about, like, when they came out, the basic plot. And what themes they fit into. So the book that we're referencing the Stanyard's dimensions behind the Twilight Zone, he actually formatted his book into themes of the Twilight Zone. And I think mostly we agree with these themes, but we definitely think a lot of these episodes can fit into other themes. And we we didn't use all of them. If you're interested, if this seems interesting to you, I recommend go, go and buy the book. He has a couple others that are a little bit on the darker side that we didn't really feel like we needed to talk about as much as the the themes that I think speak to wider audiences anyway. So the first one is the individual. And it's defined, of course, as a single human being as distinct from a group, class, or family. That's what an individual is, everybody. That was lovely. Thank you. I've learned something Yay. <laughs> and if anything is relevant in what Stanyard says, I might mention it after the defi- like the general definition. Cool. In this one, there's no quotable things that he says. But I do want to mention that both our picks for this theme had to do with totalitarian societies. Mm-hmm. And that, again, puts emphasis on a central government and no power to the individual. So that's sort of... Good warm-up. Good warm-up for, for that, yeah. Yeah. So that's all I want to say. Cool. Uh, the first episode that we watched was called The Obsolete Man. That was actually season two, um, later in season two. It was written by Rod. Yay, Rod, like we know him. <laughs> um, and this was actually, this was 1961. So that's kind of the nice thing is about this is because it started in the 60s. It started in 1960. The seasons correspond with the year. Oh, yeah. Um, so season two is 1962. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I think that's all we really, I mean, you know. I could tell you who the director is, but you wouldn't know who it is anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So I I'm think just the writing. We're emphasizing the writing for yes. this yes. episode. Yes. And then the we're going to use the formula to describe to you the general summary of each episode. So we're going to tell you who the hero is, what the magic is, and the twist. That was all Charlotte's brilliant idea. Give her a round of applause. Well, that's your horn. That's 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 Sterling's idea. Okay. (laughs) So for this episode, the obsolete man, hero, Woodsworth, lives as a librarian in a futuristic totalitarian society that has deemed books and religion obsolete. 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 (laughs) They say it a lot. You could probably take shots in that episode. Yeah, and the main dude... I think you're the one that wrote this down. He was like, the narcotics you call books. Yeah, that's my favorite. I love that line. It's a great line. It's just so like, oh, he says it with such seething anger. And I'm like, yeah, his narcotics are books. Isn't that a great <laughs> idea that the more you know coming from books and being literate, that's the biggest threat of your citizens. There's a reason people like to burn books. It's not the reason you think it is. It's that reason. They don't want you to know shit. 
the magic when Woodsworth fails to convince the state chancellor of his value in society. Woodsworth invites the chancellor. The chancellor is the one who's judging him, basically. Hate to judge people. Yeah, that's his job, is to deem people worthy or not, or to condemn them to death. The chancellor is very appropriate then, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so Woodsworth invites the chancellor to be present during Woodsworth's televised execution. And how does he do this? Question mark. <laughs> Woodsworth locks himself and the chancellor inside the room set to explode. And while reading from the Bible, Woodsworth is actually reading the Bible to the chancellor. He's a religious man. Yeah, yeah, he is, which, again, is very interesting. We'll talk about that. Okay. Woodsworth challenges the state to rescue the chancellor or allow the chancellor to accept his coming fate. Because if the state does interfere, well, then they're going to be embarrassed was the idea. And Woodsworth was betting they wouldn't do that. And the chancellor's like, oh, of course they will. Like, he's so confident in his he's like, police state. Yeah. Like, you, the state does not serve you, buddy. You serve the state. <sighs> Which the state is, comes first. It's going to make this twist so good. Yeah. So the twist then, the, in the last moments before the explosion, the chancellor pleads to God for his life. He realizes Woodsworth is right. So he pleads to God. And upon hearing these magical words, <laughs> Woodsworth allows the chancellor to clear the explosion. Woodsworth does die. He, he remains right. in, the, in the room, but he lets the chancellor out. But as punishment for the chancellor's final words <laughs> to God, the state deems him obsolete and sentences the chancellor to death. And that's how Spoiler, by the way. Oh, these are all spoilers. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just... So that's the general summary. That's beautiful. Obsolete. <laughs> I do think it's fitting that he was both a librarian, a bookman, and a religious man. He was like the perfect person to martyr himself. He was like a good version of a martyr. <laughs> yeah. And being a librarian, I think in any circumstance, you have so much knowledge that being religious doesn't, I mean, to me, that doesn't take away from my belief that he's intelligent. You know, he can be cunning and st still be a God-fearing man and... Be a religious and faithful man. You yeah. know, all these combinations really work for yeah. the higher being. Right. That, sh that should not be put to death. Yes. And is being put to death. Yes. On live television. On live television. It's very yeah. hungry. Yeah. That's a very um, state police sort of thing to do. It's like, nah, we're going to show everybody. Exactly. What happens when you. Fear. It's V for Vendetta. You just push them down with fear. Fear, fear, fear. And then as a rule of thumb. If anybody who's seen Twilight Zone, you always know that Serling exits with some sort of moral. And it's his voice usually as a voiceover or he'll appear in person. Sometimes he breaks the fourth wall. There's a lot of ways that he does it, but there's always some sort of exit to the episode. Which he kind of had to fight for. They had really? somebody else as a narrator and, and I mean, they were, they tried out a few different people and it just wasn't right. They tried out Orson Welles, didn't quite fit. Interesting. And so Rod just kind of did it to do it and they were like he's the perfect person to do this and i'm like well duh he's the creator he yeah. yeah so then he he became the narrator oh my gosh yeah. i think it works really well it's perfect and like you were you the one that said that when he appears on screen he looks very he doesn't show emotion right when he says this fantastic moral he's right. not like crying when it's sad <laughs> he's not like super happy when it's funny right. he's he's very it's almost like a report yeah, yeah, he's reporting on it. But it's not like he's bored reporting on it. No. He's just like, well, that's what you get. 
but not even right i mean i don't know i think again that's why i'm not like psychologically traumatized by any of this because he reminds me that it's a story right yeah and I'm participating in it. Yeah. And sometimes he'll even say, like, we'll see you next time in the Twilight Zone. I mean, you know, you kind of have this sense of ending. You are now leaving this mysterious place, but you can always go back to it at any given time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's very Hitchcockian, too, yes. isn't it? Yes. Because, yeah, Hitchcock had that same face. You can't yeah. quite tell what he's thinking, but it's it works. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. If you if you don't know Rod Serling. If you've seen those those clips of Hitchcock, that's exactly a lot of smoking of cigarettes. If you quit smoking, <laughs> don't watch the show. It's very painful. That's right. Yeah, yeah we kind of noticed that the first episodes. Why is everybody smoking? Oh, everybody is smoking constantly. I'm surprised he didn't die from like lung cancer or anybody. I mean, they yeah, sure they did later. Oh, they did. <laughs> so the exit lesson for this episode. So quote: Any state, entity, or ideology becomes obsolete. When it stockpiles the wrong weapons, when it captures territories but not mines, when it enslaves millions but convinces nobody, any state which fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, and the right of man, that state is obsolete. I there's I cut off a few things, but I feel like the general morals in there. For some reason, I don't know why, but it reminded me of The Three Wise Men when we did that episode. It's sort of like the O. Henry story where you get the allegory and then at the very end you get a little paragraph that kind of sums it up for you. But it doesn't always, it doesn't feel like it's like you're dumb. It feels like it's the rest of it is being sort of packaged up for you. I know that's not the point of reading that, but that's what came to me when you were reading it. I think that works in its favor because you're sending off your audience with curiosity and that makes it last longer. It's not a resolute, even though there's a moral, you understand the moral, but you're like, okay, well, what happens after that? Right. And where do I see that? And what if I come across that situation? Isn't that beautiful? It's awesome. It's awesome. (laughs) Ah. Dash some. Some. <laughs> and I also, I, this this might be my favorite episode out of all the nice. ones we watched. Just because there's so much talk of philosophy and literature and the importance of being well-read. And, and it's such a threat to this police state that has absolutely banished any individual thought. And I think the dialogue between the Chancellor and Woodsworth, mm-hmm. especially when they're about to be blown up... And as the tension raises, you see the dialogue changing more. I know he's reading from the Bible most of the time, but but they do they do banter a little bit. And yeah. that's some of my favorite dialogue. Nice. And as a matter of fact, here's a clip from it right now. You underestimated me. You wanted the whole country to see the way that a librarian dies. Well, let the whole country see the way an official of the state dies, too. You have this strong symbol of giant authority. And this insignificant librarian that suddenly, in the eyes of God, there is precious little to distinguish us. That's the part where I was just like, oh, everything I believe in is like wrapped up in that dialogue. But it's clever dialogue. That's awesome. And we're focused on the dialogue. We're not distracted. Again, a simple set, two people in a locked room. This is going back to the basics. Yeah, which makes it effective because you have to have good writing for that to work. Otherwise, it looks stupid, and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> right. Like, does a kid write this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. it has to be good, otherwise it doesn't work. Right. And then if you introduce a ticking time bomb, literally, in this episode, there is a ticking time bomb. Which is great. 
And that's, yeah, that's one of the things that happens earlier on is that, you know, he makes sort of a big stink about only the executioner will know how he wants to die. Oh, yeah. And so because of that, the chancellor has no, we have no idea either. We're not quite sure how it's going to play out. And I, I honestly didn't expect the main character, uh, Woodsworth, which, <laughs> words worth. Uh, but words are worth things. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I was really surprised that Wordsworth let him go in the end. Mm. Because it, it did sort of feel like he might not let him go. And he didn't really deserve to be let go. But you get that he's like a good person because of that. I mean, you if you had any doubts left over, if maybe he is kind of a crazy guy or he's a kook or he's not really, he is obsolete. It kind of reminds you at the end there that he isn't. He's worthwhile. I was convinced that he knew exactly what was going to happen. I, I mean, it was his own experiment where he was like, well, let me just prove to you how everybody is worthy of life mm -hmm. because you're going to do exactly what everybody else will do in this situation. Yeah. And here it is. Yeah. I mean, he knew it. Uh, he's not only book smart, he's people smart. Right. Is, I mean, is the vibe I got off of him. Yeah. If the chancellor didn't plead for his life, I have a feeling he would have just let him blow up. Oh, I mean, yeah. He would have been like, no, well, you didn't say it. So, yeah. Either way, I'm proving a point. Right. But the second, the second choice would prove more of my point if you did say, for the love of God, let me out. Right. He was waiting for that. It's like a good Joker. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Joker doing messed up things, but for good reason, <gasps> not for chaos. I love that. <laughs> oh, all sorts of ideas just <laughs> came about in my mind. And he's, he's kind of the main character of Wordsworth. He's kind of fun to watch because everybody else is very formal. And there are men and women, and they're all sort of in uniform, drab uniform. It's not like fun Starfleet uniforms. <laughs> right. um, and he's sort of this like weird, sort of awkward, almost mousy kind of guy that obviously does not fit in. It's interesting that they have such a small pretense that they have to cling on to. Cling on to. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's for all you Star Trek fans out there. To get rid of him. To get him out of their society. Speaking of Klingons, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know that trial room, I don't know how you just said it and it was like, there it is. The <laughs> trial room with that really long table and the chancellor being up in this tall podium pedestal sort of thing mm -hmm. with the accused being so far and then lower than him. And in and, the darkness. Yeah, I was going to say, you pointed out that there was a shadow in the light and yeah. he kept saying, step into the light because you're being accused of something. Oh, right. <laughs> It reminded me of, of all of the Klingon mm. trial oh, trial yeah. rooms. You know, the, the chancellor's always up in this tall right. pedestal sort of thing. And then the accused, in, in the Klingon's case, it's like a circular right. pad where it is lit. So right. everybody around them can be looking directly at them. Right. And I think parliament, like British parliament, oh, is yeah. sort of situated that way too. You're right. You're right. Very... Uh, Police state, totalitarian dictatorships, all of those governments would probably have a similar setup. And that use of the long table. Yeah. I mean, again, V for Vendetta uses the same sort of, he's always shot from below. You're looking up at him constantly. He's bigger than life. And Hitler was the same way. You know, he's always, he's this tiny ass little man, but he's always bigger than everybody else and louder and gesturing and it's Tell effective. Me. The environment. Oh. One of these days when I finally write a thesis, environment is just so key to depth of meaning for everything. Mm -hmm. Where you are, how it's set up, it's just, ugh. 
fascinating to me. I mean, it's, it's twisted, but it's fascinating because you, you see a round table and you're like, yep, that's quote unquote communism or that's mm. community or that's mm. equality. Knights of the round table. They were all, you know, there was no hierarchy, even though there kind of was. But Except for the war room, right? The war room had was a circle. Was it? Dr. Strangelove. Oh. It was very similar, but it was like the, the shadow side of that situation. Oh, yeah. It's like they're all working together to destroy everything. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's about teamwork. <laughs> Whether you're trying to save the world or destroy it, you got to have teamwork. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's what's really cool about that one is we're looking at society in the obsolete man. And in the other episode that we picked for... The individual we're also looking at society and it's kind of it's similar in, in a lot of ways and, and dissimilar also the episode is called the eye of the beholder which we mentioned briefly earlier season two also early season two it was also written by rod serling 1960 because it's the first uh, i guess it's 1960 for season two because it was early on so oh. i guess my rule doesn't always work uh, so mm. thank you i think that's kind of all the basic information of the eye of the beholder do you want to tell us about the story itself sure oh my god (laughs) the three elements are hero and a hero doesn't have to mean likable by the way hero is just the main person we're following who's trying to solve a problem or a conflict or going through the journey did you not find janet likable no no no. i'm just saying that you know not all the i mean when you think hero um maybe this is just me but when i think hero in our generation again it's superhero and the one who conquers all and learns a huge moral and right or the joseph campbell hero where i mean this is it applies to twilight zone but it's not always a likable character right yes is harry potter not likable (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Harry Potter had friends that were likable. Exactly. <laughs> this character was totally likable. Cool. By the way. Sorry. Hero. Janet. Taylor. Tyler. Tyler. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no A. <laughs> Janet Tyler has undergone her 11th treatment, the maximum number allowed in this society, in an attempt to look normal by her society's standards. Though her doctor and nur- nurses show her sympathy, they make it clear that if the surgery is not successful... That she would have to live as an outcast. That's one of the rules, is the way you look, which is bonkers to me. <laughs> but also realistic. Right. <laughs> right. So the magic. When her bandages are ready to be removed, several things are revealed to the audience. One, by our standards, Janet Tyler is a beautiful woman. Her face is just like gorgeous. It looks like one of those Hollywood <laughs> faces. But at the same time, the second thing revealed is that her doctors and nurses have the face of a pig. Because this whole time, everybody's face was in the shadows or hidden. I love how they shot it. Yeah. It was awesome. One of the trademarks of this episode, yes. right, was what they were doing with the shadows and the light. Yes. Black and white. But we we understand that the normal for them is this pig face. That's what makes their society normal. Right. And Janet with this, what we call beautiful face, is the abnormal. Blonde, white woman who looked like she could be in Hollywood films, like you said. Yeah. And she was. <laughs> So then the twist is that, of course, but also (laughs) feeling hopeless, she makes a run for it. But once the doctors catch up to her, they introduce her to someone who looks exactly like her. And like he's in charge of this kind of outcast community where she can live a normal life because all of them look like she does or what we perceive to be probably gorgeous and beautiful. An island full of gorgeous people, apparently. Uh, To me, that was kind of a, a relief because I thought it was going in a weird, dark place where... If the 11th surgery didn't work and she was an outcast, that she would try to kill herself or she would 
Or they would kill her. Or they would kill her. Or she would. we would just see her in agony there running away and just have to use our imagination to see what happens next. But I felt so much better with this final lesson of, you know, even the outcasts have a place. I mean, for that society, that's, again, really messed up. Yeah. Uh, can I play a clip yes. real quick? Is yes. that okay? Absolutely. Okay. Now, we have done all we could do. If we've been successful, well and good, there are no problems. But... If, on the other hand, this final treatment has not achieved the desired result, please remember, Miss Tyler, that you can still live a long and fruitful life among people of your own kind. People of your own kind. Which I do agree. I thought that was pretty surprising. I thought it was going to go darker, too. Um, Especially since they kind of, once you see the faces of the nurses and the doctor... And there's a lot of really interesting dynamics in there also that isn't part of the main point, but the doctor being upset by this and not wanting this to be true was a really interesting twist. In this totalitarian society that there was some opposition, even in the medical field, because I'm assuming most outcasts would end up there trying to do the surgery. And I'm assuming some of them worked. I mean, it'd be weird if none of them worked. Yeah. But that he's thinking about, well, who said, like, why? Why? I mean, we talk to her like she talks to us. Especially since I kind of expected it to be from the nurses more so. Yeah. I felt like they might have, they have a lower standing in society. But actually, it was the doctor who maybe has, because he has more standing, he can say things like that. But even the nurse that was working with him told him to stop. Like, stop talking. That's not acceptable. Isn't that weird? It opens up all these windows and doors, and I just want to know more about the society. And like I said, they show the the nurses with the different faces, and then they show some clips from the TV uh, of, like, their leader, who looks very dictatory and also has that same face. So it's it's a really interesting mirror. You know, it's a reflection of ourselves, but opposite. And it's super weird and fun and kind of crazy and we talked about how beauty could be substituted with anything right ethnicity if somebody had black skin and they try they were doing surgery to make it white and what if that didn't work right then yeah you would be outcast right i mean it works for a lot um, lgbt right it i mean it could be anything that's considered abnormal right so just the fact that it's beauty again to us is like well everybody looks different like no that's not the point right in this society that that's too different exactly you can you can be different but it's got to be within these parameters and that's it and and like you said like the guy that shows up at the end of very like you said he was handsome i didn't get it but whatever (laughs) i mean it looked like a greaser i think they just looked that way in the 60s like everybody wore like pomade so their hair always looked that way anyway that's true i don't know sorry maybe like fathers didn't look i don't know but he was like yeah you know you'll you'll actually be really happy where we are there are other people around you that will care about you and that seemed like such a better place to go anyway it was a weird i don't know it was almost kind of like a letdown that something more dramatic didn't happen Ah. but i also feel like again there's like another opportunity where you're like there's so much more here i want to know what's going on out there outside of this hospital and it wasn't that I didn't believe him. I I totally believed what he was saying. I'm totally. like, girl, I would be <laughs> jumping on that opportunity because he's touching on what the doctor was questioning before, which is there might be an outcast community, but what if that community is doing so much more than your dictatorship? Right. And all of the 
creativity and communications and that lifestyle the misfit island is actually where all of the great stuff is happening he convinced me of that i'm like yeah i'd rather be there anyway (laughs) and and that that's another psychological aspect of it is learning relearning how to not hate yourself because she absolutely just detests herself and she does some pretty crazy things because she hates herself and the way she looks and i think that's an amazing transition psychologically for people when they when they go through that that like oh i don't need to look this way and i don't need to look that way and i i don't need to be upset at myself for not looking that way right like i think that's a really great transition i think that happens like with teenagers a lot when they're like oh i don't need to look a certain way i can look how i want to look exactly and then eventually you like calm down and you're like okay well whatever everybody's do their own thing you know just don't tell me what to do yeah you go through stages and the rebellious stage usually means a radical change right which i again like you said it's necessary and good because now you get to know who you are right and accept yourself for who you are yeah and imagine doing all that in a society that prevents you from doing that you know or punishes you for for doing that you're gonna have a lot of inner work to do to like separate what is you and what is the state and what psychological damage yeah yeah but if you're i think that's like such a great outcome to this episode is like she gets to go to a place where people have been thinking about this where there are other people who have not been successfully reintegrated into society and they have knowledge that she doesn't have it's a really cool concept it's very rod sterling and it's optimistic and it's social and it's it's got all the different points that he likes to hit on yeah this, this exit is very simple. The end. Just kidding. It has the end in it. No. It's something that we've all heard before. He says, quote, The old saying happens to be true. On this planet or wherever there is human life, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, look, that's the title. I love it oh, so God. much. Very simple, but beautiful. He didn't need to say much, so he didn't. That's right. Because he's Sterling. That's how you do it. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, really be it cigarette that he finished okay, but you know put out your cigarette <laughs> no no you just drop him in the 60s oh. you don't put him out oh my god really? <laughs> no <laughs> i was like how many fires were there in the 60s Jeez. i think we'll stop there for this episode because we want to make sure that we cover all of the episodes that we want to talk about give them their due time yes thoroughly so we'll pick up next time Hopefully it'll not be very long in between, but we both have quite a few things going on right now, as well as moving. Yay to moving. I absolutely hate moving, so that's going to be fun. What else? Do we have any other things besides, you know, do all the things if you want. Rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at BiteThePen, and then you can visit our website at BiteThePen.com. You can donate things to us if you'd like. Like, what do you want? Hand wipes. Hand wipes. Oh my god! Everybody, that's like gold right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take some Starburst. Just kidding. I can't eat those. <laughs> some guy came into work today and was like, "Would you like some beef jerky?" And I was like, "No." Whoa. I'm um, not vegan, but I no, I'm okay. Thank you though. That's such an interesting thing to offer too. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I was like, no thanks. So yeah, we'll pick up next week. Is there anything else you want to throw in there before we? exit stay curious everyone (laughs) thank you for listening always